This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. I am so excited to share this episode with you guys. My conversation with Jen was incredible. I even cry in this episode. I don't know, she just brought it out of me. Jen Lumanlin is the host of the podcast, Your Parenting Mojo. You may have heard of it. I do find myself going to her podcast every time there's a topic that I really want to get into the research of that topic. She has experts from all different areas of the academic world come on her show and talk about really thought-provoking topics when it comes to parenting. Your Parenting Mojo has grown into a worldwide community that now offers workshops, courses, and ongoing memberships to support parents. In this episode with Jen, she tells us about what her transition into motherhood was like, which was really interesting because she did not really want children. She wasn't interested in having children. And now she is the creator of this massive parenting podcast and platform, which is kind of funny. I guess that's just how life works sometimes. It reminds me of myself because in my undergrad degree, I was absolutely terrified of statistics. But in order to do psychology, you had to have all these statistics courses. I can't even say it. And I was terrified and I ended up doing amazing and that ended up being my strength. And then my PhD was focused on like really advanced statistics. So it's just funny how life turns out sometimes. In this episode, we talk a lot about the intersection of parenting and social justice. So major themes that she focuses on in a new book that she's writing is capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy. In this episode, we really get into the patriarchy part of it. We also chat about why our children's behavior can trigger us. She also explains the difference between being triggered and being flooded, which I had not heard of before, but it is useful to understand the proper terminology. Her explanation of patriarchy in parenting was so incredible and it really made me think because based on the research, Milo is right before the age where little boys start to change and not want to show emotions 
And it's fascinating when she gets into the research that explains that, how four to five-year-old boys, they change. And it's like, obviously, our society plays a role in that, but how does our parenting contribute to that? I do believe one of the first questions I ask her with regard to the patriarchy is, what is it? Because I think there is a misconception when we hear that word, we think like, ooh, men are bad. But it's really like patriarchy hurts men and women. So she explains it beautifully, and I will stop trying to explain it myself in this tiny intro. So without further ado, guys, please welcome Jen Lumanlin to the Mom Room podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Jen Lumanlin. She is the host of the podcast, Your Parenting Mojo. So I always ask people to tell me about themselves and then also what your transition into motherhood looked like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I should start with, I never wanted to be a parent. I never liked children. So I just assumed that it was something that was not going to happen. And my husband does like children and wanted to have them, but he never pressured me into it. Although I, in the end, I decided I, I didn't want to be responsible for the biggest disappointment in his life. Mm. So I actually uh, surprised him. <laughs> <laughs> I came off birth control and didn't tell him. And oh. so he was very much surprised, <laughs> but was then happy to have been surprised in that way. <laughs> and I would say the first, that first year was tough. And I think that in, in part, it was because I was trying to figure out how to be myself while also be a parent. And a, a really big part of who I was before I got pregnant was that I used, I love to hike. I love to backpack. And I was trying to figure out how to do them both. And so eventually I realized, well, actually not eventually, but fairly soon I realized I could still backpack with an infant. And so a friend and I actually hiked for 10 days around Mont Blanc in Switzerland and France and Italy with a mm. eight-week-old on my front. Wow. <laughs> and, and people say, oh my goodness, that must have been so hard. And it was not because all the time I was at home, I was trying to get her to sleep. And everything just seemed like a struggle. And when I was hiking, she was just sleeping all day and nothing seemed like a struggle. And so I think that that experience was a really key event for me in getting comfortable with being a parent. Mm -hmm. And like keeping your identity and doing things that you enjoy while also having a child, which is something a lot of moms find difficult. I'm curious how you go from, I don't want to have kids to you know, being the creator of this massive parenting community. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that was because I would get emails from a certain parenting platform that shall remain unnamed saying things like five ways to tell if your child has a developmental delay. And it wouldn't tell you, and it, maybe, maybe it would reference one study, but it wouldn't tell you anything about how that one study fit into the broader body of research and whether it confirmed the previous 10, 20 years of research on that topic or whether it was completely out there by itself. And of course, it's designed to get you to click the email, to get you to click through the website, to click through the, the, all of the reasons so that they get the ad revenue. And so I, I wanted more and different information than what I was able to find. And so I realized I have really good research skills and really crappy parenting intuition. <laughs> and that I could use the research skills to plug the gaps in the parenting intuition. And so then I went back to school, got a master's in psychology and realized it would be kind of silly to be learning all this stuff and not sharing it with other people. So that was where that came from. So all your content is very much research-based, which I love. 
And can you explain a little bit, like you were saying, about the importance of looking at the entire research, like, you know, everything that's out there versus a lot of the times, like you said, they just write a headline based on some research study and nobody is going to actually read the research study. They will just read the headline and run Mm -hmm. with it. So why (laughs) is it important to know what has been going on across you know, the research world in a specific topic. Growth mindset is probably the example that springs to mind for me on that topic. So what we'll typically see in a blog post or something is somebody saying, oh yeah, growth growth mindset is good. Everybody says growth mindset is good. Here are five ways to develop growth mindset in your child. Whereas what I try to do is to understand, well, is growth mindset good? <laughs> who is it good for and how do we know that? So then we start looking at the studies of the people who have been intimately involved in developing growth mindset, as well as the people who have been around the edges of it, as well as looking at people who are critical of growth mindset. What do they have to say? How do what they say fit with what the people who are supportive of it say? Are they talking about the same things or are they talking past each other? And when you do that, what you see is, you know, you you need to have a a basic level of statistical understanding to to say, well, what are the effect sizes here? If the the headline of the study comes out and says, well, when you do A, it's way better than doing B. And you're like, great, I'm going to do A. And then you actually get into the the results section and you find an effect size that is, I don't know, 0.2 when you're looking on a zero scale of zero to one, where zero is, you know, basically there's nothing there. And one is these two things are super tightly connected. You know, an effect size of 0.2 is nothing to write home about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yes, technically, A is a bit better than B, but is it better enough that we should be spending our time and attention focused on this? Maybe not. Maybe there are other things that we should be looking at. And so doing that across the whole body of research and even stepping outside of it to say, well, who who are these, who's in the sample of, of these studies? Are they only looking at white people, which is what most studies do? They'll take a vast majority of the subjects will be white, and then they apply that finding as if it was applicable to all of humankind. Who is really being impacted by this when we're taking what we know about growth mindset and we're applying it in schools? And what we're essentially saying is, you know, poor children who are often black and brown, if you just have a growth mindset, then you'll be able to achieve and you'll be able to overcome all these obstacles that have been in your path. When actually what we need to be addressing is why are these obstacles there? (laughs) Why haven't we addressed poverty? Why haven't we addressed all of the challenges that go along with that? And instead we're teaching these children, this is your individual thing to fix and growth mindset is the thing that's going to do it. I love the chat about effect sizes and all this stuff. But again, I get a lot of pushback for things that I talk about on social media. And oftentimes I'm met with, you know, people will throw up like a reference to a research study. And I'm like, so then I actually go and I look at the research study and I'm like, (laughs) oh my God. But how do you explain to people the importance of the quality of a research study? Because, you know, there's so many of these like hot topics in parenting And oftentimes there's like one study with like, you know, a sample size of 50 or something. And, you know, it's a really poorly done study, but people will use that as their like ammunition to try and get you on their side when really most things in parenting, it's not right or wrong. It's like there's a middle ground. Can you talk a little bit about research quality? 
I wouldn't necessarily say that a sample size of 50, like it's not, it is terrible. It's not like the bigger sample size, the better. And actually, as I'm sure you know, through your, your PhD studies, that big sample sizes can actually get you in different kinds of trouble where you tend to find effects where there aren't necessarily any there. What's important is that the sample size is designed for what you're trying to find. So if you're interviewing people, then no, you're not going to have a study that has 3,000 people in it. In that case, a study of 50 people is actually appropriate. And maybe that helps you to uncover information that you then are able to design a survey where you can go and study 3,000 people. Are the, the methods that you're using to analyze the data in line with the kinds of accepted practices that scientists usually use. Are you sampling people in a way that is, is representative of the, of the population if you're trying to make claims about the whole population? So I'm, I'm always looking for all of those things and as well as trying to see, well, does this build on what has come before it? Does it plug a hole that was there? Does it confirm what has come before? And if not, is there a good reason for that? Has anyone already criticized this methodology, this paper, for some reason that I'm not aware of yet, looking, to, looking for that information too, so that I can try to present to listeners really a, a fairly complete picture of what the, the body of literature is saying. And yes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm never going to find every single paper there is on a topic. It's not possible. But I'm trying to give an overall sense of the body of literature so that you can say, okay, I feel as though I have my arms around this now, even though I'm not the one who's read these 40 papers. Yeah. <laughs> I understand enough that I can make a decision based on my values, because that's the critical thing, right? Is how does this result fit with my, what my values are as a parent? So I can then move forward and, and decide how I want to make this decision about raising my child. So you're basically doing all the legwork for parents. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and giving them like a Coles Notes version of the entire research, you know, on one specific topic. That's great. Yes. And for the Americans, that's Cliff Notes. And for the English, oh. I don't even remember what it would be, actually. <laughs> I didn't yeah, realize it, it was called different things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cliff Notes. <laughs> So you recently finished a first draft of a book, which is incredible, where you look at the intersection of parenting and social justice. So can you kind of just explain the major themes that you write about in the book? Yeah, yeah. There's really one overarching idea, and that is that we have a lot of challenges in the world. <laughs> the, the three that, that principally I focus on are white supremacy, uh, with racism being a, a way of that, that, that that is expressed, patriarchy and capitalism. And those are creating a lot of challenges, a lot of stress for everybody. Some people are more impacted by others, but they are not really working for anybody. On the flip side of that, we have parents who are struggling, who are just trying to make it through each day. And at first blush, it seems like, well, how are those two things even related? <laughs> yes, I care about these social issues, but I'm just trying to get through today. And so these, these two things have nothing in common. And my, my thesis is these two things are intimately connected. And the way that we interact with our children in our daily lives has the potential to be very much easier in the present when we can actually understand why is my child doing this thing that I'm finding so frustrating and to work with them to meet the need that they are trying to meet through doing that behavior that I'm finding so frustrating at the same time as I understand what my need is in this situation and get that met as well. That by doing that, parenting today gets easier. And also we're raising children who 
have a deep understanding of respect, respect for themselves and respect for other people. And I believe that if we are raising children who have this deep respect for other people, then we are going to be much better equipped to address the problems that are associated with white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. just give a brief definition or explanation of, because I feel like patriarchy and capitalism, I think most people understand white supremacy, but those two other ones, I think it's a word that we hear all the time and we know like, oh, that's bad. But I don't think we actually understand what it is and how it's so deeply rooted in our society. So can you kind of speak on that a little bit? 
So I think when most people hear patriarchy, this idea of sort of man-hating comes to mind. (laughs) That if we are trying to break down patriarchy, what we're trying to do is remove men, and particularly middle-class white men, who are cisgender, heterosexual, from their perch at the top, and that everybody else is going to be given a chance to to dominate. I think that's sort of the the natural, you know, when when I would have heard patriarchy two or three years ago, that's what I would have thought. My understanding on this topic shifted through a conversation I had with my amazing friend, Brian, who we were on a call one day about just what we're each working on. And he said he was working on dismantling patriarchy. And I almost spat out my tea. And I said, well, aren't, why are you doing this? Yeah. Aren't, as a cisgender, heterosexual, white male, middle-class male, why are you working on dismantling patriarchy? You're one of its major beneficiaries. And then I learned that patriarchy is not about hating men. It's a system that privileges men above other people, that causes these traits that we all have within us, like nurturing and sensitivity and caring are seen as feminine, and so they're worse. And rationality and being forceful and sort of being a very big presence in the world is seen as being masculine and is therefore better. And when we do that, what we're saying is to men, you know, it's not okay to be sensitive because if, you be, if you're sensitive, you're just like a girl. And there's no worse insult to a, a teenage boy and then to, to men as well to say, you know, you're, you're just as bad as a girl. You're just like a girl. And so what we do is we deny men their full ability to experience all of their feelings and we deny women the ability to say what they really think. And so it's damaging to everybody. It's more damaging to people who are further away from that cisgender, heterosexual, middle-class, white, male norm. And so I'm sort of one step removed from it, being a female. And and, and there are the more sort of gender and less white, <laughs> you, the more you move away from that, that central norm, the more people are impacted by that system. And so what we're trying to do is to say that that system isn't working for everybody and let's try something else, not privileging everybody else over white men, but let's all heal from this system that's hurting us so much. Right. Because I listened to your two episodes on patriarchy. I think they were from 2019. Yeah. And Brian and I actually interviewed Dr. Carol Gilligan. Yeah. Yeah. And just to understand how it also is harmful for boys and men. You know, and I don't think people think about that. So can you give examples or, you know, if someone's listening and they're like, oh, I would like to raise my kids, you know, to not be, I don't know how you would even word it, like, you know, under a a patriarchy or I don't want to like pass on those ideologies to my child. Like, what are some things that parents can do or work on? Well, there's a lot. If you're working with male identifying children, boys specifically, then a lot of it, I think, comes down to expressing feelings and having that be okay. And that we're not telling boys to stop crying, to man up, to cover up their feelings. They're going to get plenty of policing out in the world. <laughs> Other people are going to tell them that it's it's not okay to cry, even if it's just a look. You know, there's uh, Dr. Judy Chu did some some studies on this where she looked at boys the age of around four and five who are getting dropped off at school. You know, what what is their relationship like with their parent? And when 
their parent hugs, you know, when they hug their parent just a little bit too long, the other five-year-olds in the classroom, they notice, <laughs> right? So, so that's what I mean by policing, that that kid is then going to get teased later in the day for doing something that is a little too feminine, a little too sensitive. So we really want our homes to be a place where boys feel comfortable expressing the fullness of their emotions and not just the anger that is something that is our what our society says is acceptable for them to express. From girls' side, I think the, the tendency has been to, to lean more towards masculinity and say, you know, you can do STEM careers, you can do the science, uh, technology, education, math, you can do anything you want. And when we devalue caring, what we're still saying is that qualities associated with femininity are still devalued. So I think it's really important that caring is not seen as something as we kind of shove it under the rug and pretend it's not there. So, so I think that's, that's one thing. But the, the, real, the real shift for me is in how power shows up in our families, because that's ultimately at the root of patriarchy, right, is, is how power is negotiated and how it is wielded over other people. And I think that the parents, most of the parents I work with feel as though they have a real need for control. Like if I'm in control, mm -hmm. then everything feels safe. And when we're interacting with a child who has very different ideas about how things should be done, then that sense of control gets really pushed. And so when we move away from think, thinking, I need to control every aspect of the situation to... I'm going to be in a relationship with my child where I'm going to try to understand what their needs are. Why are they doing this thing? And also I'm going to express my needs. I'm not going to be a permissive parent, right? That's what every parent's afraid of. We're afraid of getting walked all over. So it, it, I, I'm permissive when I'm meeting your need and I'm not meeting my need. I'm not even acknowledging my need. That's not what we're doing. We're saying my need and your need have just as much importance here and we're going to try and meet both of them. That to me is absolutely patriarchy, white supremacy busting work right there. It makes me so sad because I know in your episodes on patriarchy, you talked about how the research shows that boys start to change right around age four and five. My son is three and a half. And just that example that you gave, like yesterday I dropped him off at daycare. He hadn't been there for two weeks and so it was a difficult drop off and he was sobbing and like, mommy, mommy, like reaching for me. And to think that, you know, two years from now, his peers might look at him funny if I give him a hug, like that is a drastic change. So yeah, it's like what happens in those years? If you don't do anything differently, like if you just... The way our culture works is just to say, well, you just do what everybody else is doing. And so if you don't have conversations with him about this, if you don't talk about how it's okay to feel everything you're feeling, and it's okay to share everything you're feeling with me, and if you are having a hard time at drop-off and you want to have a hug, let's have a hug. Maybe talk about, well, you know, so-and-so today said that I was whatever for, for giving you a big hug. Well, how about we have a hug out by the car instead so that we can still allow you to experience the fullness of your emotions and also protect you a little bit. You know, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> and maybe we might decide that modeling, if, if our child is, is along for the ride, we might decide we're going to model to other people what, what it's like to have a long hug uh, between a boy and his mom. 
or we may decide, you know what, that's that's a little bit too scary for us. We still want you to be able to experience this. And so let, let's remove that to a, a bit more private space and, and we're still going to allow you to do this. Having these ongoing conversations, this isn't one conversation and, you know, we're always going to have hugs whenever you want it. This is, well, how did that feel for you? What, what happened when so-and-so said that? This is a conversation that's going to happen multiple, multiple times throughout our, our lives with our children. Okay, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about triggers. I know you said the control word, which mm-hmm. I love that because I've done a lot of stuff about like rage and anger in motherhood. And a lot of it has to do with feeling like you're not in control. And those are the moments that usually trigger parents or behaviors, you know, from our children. So can you speak a little bit about why our children's difficult behaviors trigger us as parents? I want to be precise with the terminology that we're using here. So when we talk about feeling triggered, that's a very specific terminology that means it's bringing up something related to a trauma that we've experienced in the past. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's also possible to feel flooded, which essentially feels very similar, (laughs) but it's not necessarily associated with trauma in the past. And that might be from things like, things are just getting on top of me at the moment, and what we call our window of tolerance is becoming very narrow. I didn't really experience necessarily very much trauma in my childhood, but still I'm feeling very depleted. And so my child's behavior is pushing my buttons. So then I would say I'm feeling flooded. Okay. Um, if I'm feeling triggered, it is a result of some kind of trauma. And I have this, this theory, firstly, that, that we don't actually have a need for control, that control isn't really a need. What, what control does is it masks the needs that are underneath. Control masks a need for for me to feel safe, <laughs> for me to feel as though I'm raising my child in a way that is aligned with my values, maybe with what my mother-in-law is telling me when I see her every Sunday or whenever it is, with what culture our, our culture says is an acceptable way to raise children. And so I, I think that, that that control really masks a lot that's underneath. And when we are flooded or triggered by our child's behavior, What's typically happening is, especially if we're triggered, it's reminding us of something that has happened to us in the past. And that may be what psychologists call big T trauma, which is like, you know, the really big stuff, a parent dying, living in a family where there's addiction, that kind of thing. Little T trauma, which is more things more like divorce and bullying in school. And, and then I also bring in the, the ideas that, that I talk about in the book that I'm writing uh, about white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, because in my view, the way that our parents socialized us conditioned us to experience, to, they made it so that we experienced trauma in the way that they raised us. So let me explain that. So maybe I have a, a huge love of art. It's just something I want to spend all my time doing. And my parent says to me, well, you know, art's never going to pay the bills. <laughs> so you you can do it on your spare time if you want, but it's not a real, it's not a job. It's, it's not a real profession. So get your homework done. That's capitalism at work, right? That That's our parent wanting us to be self-sufficient in life, to be to be able to take care of ourselves. But the way that they did it minimized this thing that we love so much. And now maybe I don't even do art anymore because just thinking about doing art makes me feel just really, you know, flat and 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 tensed up because I associate it with my parent telling me it's not real. What, what you're doing is not important. When we have an idea about how we want to do something and our parent says, no, we're not doing it that way. We're doing it my way. And stop asking, stop 
just stop. <laughs> stop telling me what you think is the way that you're going to do it. We're doing it my way. That's patriarchy at work. That's, that's the power structure in patriarchy that flows downhill. And that created trauma. That's why we have no idea what our needs are today. You know, when I, when I say to, to parents, identify your needs, they look at me, they're like, what? I, I don't know what my needs are. That's because our parents trained us to not understand what our needs are because patriarchy says that they are at the top and they need to be the ones that hold the power and the children cannot hold the power. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Lil Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. So when your child is trying to take the power because they don't understand, they don't know any better, they can't regulate their emotions, they don't understand why they can't do what they want to do. So now a parent is triggered. Like I know how I kind of handle it when I'm having a good day and I have patience and I'm you know, able to do it the way I want to do it, like handle the situation. But there's some days, usually the bedtime struggles are a trigger, not, not a trigger. I feel flooded, 
at bedtime struggles. And sometimes I can handle it like it should be a parenting, like, you know, it's perfect <laughs> and everything, <laughs> everything goes smoothly and it's Let beautiful. Record this stuff and put it on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> like, is somebody filming me? This is amazing. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, other nights I don't have the capacity to handle it in the way that I want to. And then also maybe his behavior is heightened. It's more, he's more hyper or whatever it is. So it's just not a match. So when parents are feeling this way, do you have any tips for how they can, in the moment, maybe take themselves out of that feeling flooded, feeling triggered? Yeah. Firstly, let's just take a quick look at why this is happening at bedtime, particularly, because I think this is super, super common for parents. And one of the big reasons for it is that we're at the end of the day, we're feeling depleted. Our window of tolerance is very narrow and it does not take much to push us outside of that. And why is that? It's because we've spent the entire rest of our day not having our needs met, right? Either through our interactions with our child when they're saying we're, we're sitting down to breakfast and we're already eating, I want the green spoon. And we get up and we get them the green spoon. I want this, I want that. We're getting up, we're getting up, we're getting up. All day, we're meeting other people's needs at the expense of our needs. And we get to the end of our day and our child resists bedtime, and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's one more infringement on our needs that we just cannot take. Whereas if we had addressed this at breakfast time and maybe set a boundary and saying, uh, or, or even before that, saying, I'm about to sit down to breakfast. <laughs> Is there anything else you need? <laughs> and then when we sit down, if they, oh, mama, can I have the green spoon? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not getting up until I'm done with my breakfast right? We're setting a boundary. We're saying this time for me to eat my breakfast uninterrupted is important. If that is something that's truly important to us. And if we go ahead and, and throughout our day, we're working together to meet, to meet everybody's needs. And then when that's not possible to set a boundary and say, this is what I'm willing to do right now. And this is what I'm not willing to do right now. Then when we get to bedtime, we're not so depleted. We're not dealing with this super narrow window of tolerance where a lot of working parents particularly are trying to get some self-care time or even some more work time done after bedtime. And what it feels like is every minute I spend with my child is a minute that is being stolen from me and my self-care time and my work time. So is it any wonder that we find this flooding or triggering? So that, that's, that's the first thing to understand. So assuming you haven't been able to identify your needs <laughs> and to get those needs met and to set boundaries throughout the day that are widening your window of tolerance and allowing you to feel as though you can be in this bedtime with spaciousness and presence, what can we do? Well, basically what we're going to try and do is to get ourselves out of this moment when our overactive left brain is telling us all these stories about how my time is not worthy as, as much as anybody else's time and my child doesn't respect me and this should be easier and why haven't we figured this out by now? So ways that we can do that are to, to re-engage with our physical presence. So we might reach out and touch something that's in front of us. You know, I'm touching the desk in front of me right now. I'm feeling how smooth it feels. It's, it's a, a little bit cooler than my skin temperature. That immediately takes me out of my brain and into my physical experience. Some people find that touching something soft is extremely comforting. So you might reach out and grab one of your child's stuffed animals and just see what that feels like. The, the age-old advice to take a deep breath <laughs> is super, super valuable. 
a lot of parents I work with like to keep a hair tie on one wrist while they're, they're still learning this stuff. And that's a visual reminder of what do I want to do in these moments? And then when they find themselves in this difficult moment, they take the hair tie off that wrist and put it on the other wrist. And that takes a couple of seconds, which is enough time for a breath, which then allows you to say, how do I want to show up in this moment? <laughs> what is the most important thing here? And pretty much the answer is going to be the most important thing here is my relationship with my child. And from there, you can respond from that place instead of from the place that says, ah! <laughs> and then maybe the next day you can have a conversation with your child that talks about what are my needs at bedtime? What are your needs at bedtime? And how can we get both of those needs met instead of me feeling frustrated with you every night? So my sister is the producer on this podcast and she's listening right now. And she was at my mom's house. We stayed the night there. I was there for a week up north and Milo had when my sister was there and she's pregnant. So she must've been like, oh crap. <laughs> Milo had a terrible like meltdown, just didn't want to go to bed. I was feeling super like patient and I wasn't stressed at all. My needs were being met probably because I was at my mom's house. So yeah, he was having a meltdown in his room and I went in and I opened the door very calmly and I just knelt down to his level and I put my arms out for him to come give me a hug. And it was unbelievable. Like he came in my arms, gave me a big hug, like put his head on me and just like calm down. Like I could cry right now just thinking about it because in my mind I was thinking, I'm sure many parents who are like at the end of their rope would storm into that room and like start yelling or... And I just felt so bad. I'm such a loser crying. I felt so bad because I was able in that moment to just like kneel down and give him what he needed. And he calmed down instantly. And then he went to bed eventually. And I, I remember I talked about it with my mom. I was like the next day I told her what I had done. And she was like, yeah, you handled that really well. Like he calmed down right away. And I just, it broke my heart for all the toddlers and the young kids who are in similar situations where, you know, instead of their safe person going into the room and offering them a big hug when they're having a meltdown, they like get yelled at. And for our children as well on the days yeah. when our window of tolerance is narrow. <laughs> and I, I just want to pause you on the, uh, I'm such a loser for, for crying. <laughs> Right? Devaluing femininity. De oh, yeah. Devaluing qualities that are associated with femininity. It's so baked into us that we yeah. feel as though, oh, I, I, this, is, this is super emotional for me and I can't show it. Yeah. I love that. Good catch. I <laughs> love this. Oh, man. Okay. So you have a workshop coming up. It's called Taming Your Triggers. Can you tell us about that workshop, what it is, and if people want to sign up, where they can find out more information. Yeah, it, it's a deep dive on some of the stuff that we've talked about today. L less on the patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, and more on the <laughs> why am I feeling triggered, which some of it does come back down to that stuff. Some of it comes down to the big T, the little T trauma. So it's 10 weeks long and we alternate the content. So every, every odd numbered week, we learn more about why we're feeling triggered or flooded by our child's behavior. Where is this stuff coming from? And every even numbered week, we learn new tools to be in relationship 
relationships with them. New tools to, to create that moment of pause, right? Because right now it probably seems like when my window of tolerance is narrow and I am just at the end of my rope, there is no way to pause. There's no way to take a breath to connect with what's important to me. So we focus on creating that pause so that you can then react from a different, you can respond instead of reacting from a place that's aligned with your values. And we alternate that because we used to do it where you would do all the digging first and parents would just get like, why, why are we still <laughs> in, in the muck on the figuring out? And we need more practice on the tools. So it sounds illogical to jump back and forth, but parents actually find that that format is, gives them the insight they need along with the tools. So they're learning new tools, but what I'm giving them is not just information. And it's, it's super humbling to know this, that the information that I'm giving them is a, a really small part of what they learn that what's really happening is when they come into the community and they see hundreds of other parents who are in the same boat, who are struggling in the same way that we are, that we realize we're not alone, right? <laughs> because we, we, when we feel this guilt and shame that we're being triggered by our child's behavior, that we haven't been able, we know how we want to respond and we can't do it. We haven't been able to make that change that it feels like it's our fault. And we see all these people introducing themselves and we realize I am not alone. <laughs> and I had one parent who, who signed up and, and said that she, she saw this and for the first time she was able to see her own mother who was an alcoholic and who, and I mean, you know, this parent had a really difficult childhood. And for the first time she was able to see her own mother as a struggling 20 something parent with a whole bunch of un unprocessed trauma. And she had been in therapy. She'd done, I mean, a decade or more of work around her mother. And for the very first time, she's able to actually have real empathy for her mother. And this whole body forgiveness, it's not, I, I know I need to forgive my mother and so I'm going to say the words. She described it as, I needed to be forgiveness and I'd never felt that before and I felt it now during this course. And so she had this amazing interaction with her mother where she forgave her mother and her mother said, you know, thank you. This is a weight lifted off my shoulders. And now all of that pressure from, from all of those childhood traumatic experiences are not influencing this parent's interactions with her child as much anymore because so much healing has happened. So that's the kind of healing that takes place in community with the broad community. And then we can also pair, pair parents up with one-on-one -on -one support as well. So... So yeah, parent, parents experience a really profound transformation in, in their cognitive understanding, but also actually taking on a different understanding and really taking on new tools. So you're not just reciting a script. When, when I'm triggered, I need to do these three things. It's a different way of being in relationship with your children. And so is this at yourparentingmojo.com? It is yourparentingmojo.com forward slash taming your triggers. Just when you were giving that example of the parent with an alcoholic mother when she was a child, are you familiar with the adult attachment interview? Yeah. Okay. See, like it was making me think of that and like reflective functioning, how like we perceive why our parents behave the way they did, like when we were younger. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and of course they perceive it entirely differently. <laughs> yeah. Because oh, yes. we all, we all make up these stories in our minds about what happened to us to make it fit with what we already know and what we already believe. And our parents did that too. And their stories very often are completely different from our stories. And when we can see that both of those things are essentially stories that our brains have made up, we can hold that with a sense of lightness instead of saying, oh, this defines me and I'm always going to be a person who believes this. We can hold it with a sense of lightness and say, yeah, these things happened. And also it doesn't have to define me. 
Is it accurate to say that when parents are triggered by their child's behavior, they often don't know what it is that is triggering? Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's what I was thinking. The vast majority of parents who come into Taming Your Triggers think that their child's behavior is the problem. And if I could just get my child to change their behavior, then I wouldn't feel these explosive feelings because I I was fine until my child started doing this stuff. So of course their behavior is the thing that needs to change. When their behavior is the thing that is reminding us of these experiences that we went through as a child, whether it was big T trauma, whether it was just not having our need met. You know, I, I talk to parents who say, when I was little and I was doing my homework, if I made a smudge on the page or if I folded a corner, then my parent would scream at me. And, and you know, that now they're with their own child making holiday cards or something and, and they get a smudge and the parent has to leave the room <laughs> because the, it just brings up this memory, this visceral experience of having been screamed at for doing the same thing. Often there's a parallel between something that happened to us and this same thing happening when our child does it. Although sometimes the, the correlation isn't as direct and it's not a, you know, this happened to me and when my child does it, the same thing happens. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Okay, well, I have to say your website, your podcast, incredible resource for parents. So if you're listening and you want to find out more, I'm going to put all the links to everything in the episode notes. Where can people find you on social media, your podcast? Where can they get all things all things mojo. Yeah, all things mojo. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I sort of feel as if I've grown out of the name, but I can't I can't think of anything else. <laughs> so your yourparentingmojo.com is basically where everything flows through. You can find Taming Your Triggers there. You can find me on social media there. So yeah, that's that's really the best place to get everything. And of course, podcast episodes are available there too. Awesome. Well, it was a great conversation and I cried. So it was, it was, it was, <laughs> I think I've only cried like maybe twice on the podcast. So yeah, yeah, we'll flag this one as a crier. Yeah, let this be a goal. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, it was great talking to you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Renee. Thank you. Wow.